At the first sign of dawn, our company passed the boundary line and came under attack. And the first man who needed my help, as a priest, for he was beyond medical help, was my dear friend and brother, who had been so vitally alive only a few moments before, and so anxious to survive in order to rebuild a world gone mad. Brother Fitcher had been struck by a shell. His head was shattered and his brain spilled out like water, even while his body was still alive and wrestling against death. I was utterly overwhelmed and cried bitterly. It was the first and last time I wept during the war. Very soon things became so difficult that if one were to survive, one could not give in to his feelings. Welcome, comrades, to History with Hubble. I'm your host, Corey Hubble. The German invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941 would be the single most devastating conflict in human history. Over 30 million human lives would be lost, accounting for over 50% of all dead in the Second World War. Four million of those deaths would be German soldiers. If you died as a German soldier in World War II, there was a 70% chance it was in the East fighting the Soviets. This will be a story of the average German Lancer, or infantryman, during the invasion of the Soviet Union in 1941. The goal here is to explain the organization, motivations, emotions, crimes, and tribulations of over 3 million German soldiers that crossed that fateful frontier in June of 1941. Despite modern misconceptions of the German military in World War II being a mechanized juggernaut, the reality was quite different. Over 70% of the 200-plus divisions that were involved in Operation Barbarossa were infantry units, marching predominantly on foot. Backed by over 600,000 horses, the Lancer would be the backbone of the Wehrmacht in the east. They would march no faster than the armies of Napoleon in 1812, or even in Caesar in 20 BC. The Lancer would constantly be playing catch-up with the fast-moving panzer groups, and would march incredible distances amidst the summer heat and dust, all the while fighting the enemy that was more ferocious and deadly than any they had faced before. This story is not designed to exonerate or draw sympathy for the German cause in the Soviet Union. Make no mistake, the German invasion of the Soviet Union was a war of annihilation, pure and simple. The German army was complacent at the highest levels, with the murder of civilians, with the murder of millions of Soviet prisoners of war that died due to starvation and maltreatment, and as well as aiding indirectly or directly the genocide of the Jews in the Soviet Union. What follows will be a look into the hubris and arrogance of German soldiers as they slowly decline into the despair and ultimate apathy in the face of unrelenting Soviet resistance, as well as the brutal terrain and weather of Russia. More than anything, like all history, this is going to be a human story. Welcome to the hellish world of the German Lancier from June to December of 1941. The focus of this episode is going to be a bottom-up approach, meaning that I'm going to use a lot of primary sources to really give you the idea of what the average German Lancier was going through in the invasion of the Soviet Union from June to December of 41. Before we can get into those individual stories, though, it is important to have a background of what kind of an organization were these infantrymen fighting in. 
And so to do that, we're going to take a quick snapshot of what a German infantry division would be in 1941. So an infantry division will be the divisions that do not have large amounts of tanks or transport and will be consistent mainly of just infantrymen, the Landsheer. So in 1941, it's important to remember that the German army, the Wehrmacht, is actually two separate armies when it invades the Soviet Union. You have the Panzer divisions and motorized divisions, which are the fast-moving, armored, mobile divisions that take a lot of the headlines, and to be fair, they are the offensive firepower of the Wehrmacht, or the Ostheer, as they would call it. Here is army, so the East Army, Ostheer. You have these quick-moving panzer groups. They will form the spearhead, so to speak. So as the German army shoots into the Soviet Union, these fast-moving tank divisions will be the ones that gain a lot of the early territory. The second part of the Wehrmacht in the East will be these infantry divisions. They are marching on foot, or they are horse-drawn. And I cannot stress that enough that these men are simply not riding in trucks. And we'll talk about why that was and how that plays into the problems and the tribulations that your average German soldier will go through if he was involved in an infantry division during the invasion of the Soviet Union. So the core of a German infantry unit is going to be the 10-man squad. Um, eight of them are, are armed with the Car 98, so the Mauser Car 98, which is a bolt-action rifle. It is a perfectly suitable rifle for the time, has no major advantages or distinct disadvantages over anyone else's rifle at this time. Um, one of the members of the squad is the machine gunner, who has the MG34 light machine gun. This is the most important part of the squad, and this is why German infantry will be so effective going into uh, the Soviet Union, and honestly, World War II in general. Their focus was on the machine gun as the primary killing-slash-suppressing weapon in their arsenal. Soviet soldiers would account that they thought that every single German soldier had an automatic weapon because of the amount of firepower that could be laid down by these MG-34s. So they put a lot of emphasis on the machine gun as opposed to other countries that often made them as a separate unit. The Germans were heavily reliant on putting those within the squad. So that gives you a little idea of... If you are a German Landsheer, you would be marching in this 10-man unit attached to then later a regiment and ultimately a division. So the ideal German division in World War II has 17,000 men, which is very large, actually. The Germans have very large units at the time. A Soviet rifle division, for example, maybe has anywhere between five and 8,000 men. So we're talking these German divisions are substantially larger than the opponents they're going up against. But... As we'll see, the Soviets have a lot more of those smaller divisions. Uh, besides the equipment of just the, the, the Car 98 rifles and the MGs, every single infantry division has 600 trucks, but they also have 5,000 horses. And as I mentioned previously, we're talking about 104 infantry divisions times 5,000. That is a lot of horses. And horses need things. They need food. They need water. They need veterinarians to take care of them. 
So we'll see that this is very much an old school type army that is moving into the Soviet Union. Now to get around this, they had developed quote state of the art horse wagons. These were wagons pulled by horses that were all metal. They had ball bearings. They had rubber tires. These were pieces of equipment that were essentially the epitome of a horse-drawn carriage for military use. As we will see, though, they were designed for Central and Western Europe, and the soft, sandy roads of the Soviet Union will cause these heavy metal carts to sink and the Germans will quickly realize that their state-of-the-art wagons are not very useful in Russia. All artillery would have been horse-drawn during Barbarossa if you were attached to an infantry division. So all the big guns had to be pulled by horses. And I have a quote here from an artillery commander um, who mentioned that every normal infantry division had an artillery regiment with 105mm howitzers. It also had one medium, or schwer, battalion of 150mm guns that were transported in two loads, meaning that the gun carriage and the barrel were two separate loads, and each of those had to be pulled by at least 12 horses, the heaviest and finest that we had. Some of these guns are so large, they're actually broken up into multiple pieces and have to be pulled by 12 horses a piece. That gives you an idea of, you know, we have this image in our mind of what the German military was in the Second World War. But for the vast majority of it, it is pulling with horses. Now, what are those trucks used for? Well, the trucks would mainly have been used for the anti-tank weapons. So those would have been your smaller artillery pieces designed to punch through the armor of an enemy tank. And as it makes sense, they were given trucks to pull because if you're getting attacked by tanks, you need to have those artillery pieces quickly move into position. But the rest of the normal artillery is all being pulled by horses. Now, to give you an idea, the artillery, though, is very important to the German infantry division. A German field manual in 1943 states that artillery would be the, quote, backbone of the front. During 1941 and 1942 alone, despite habitual shell shortages, German artillery in Russia would expend more than 60 million rounds, preparing the way for the infantry in attack and shouldering much of the burden in defense. So that shows you how important artillery was, despite the fact that it's all being pulled by horses and is often running low on shells as a result of the supply problems that we'll get into later on. Now, the German infantry did have one advantage they'd never had before, and that was the deployment of Sturmgeschutz, which were motorized assault guns. A German officer writes home to his wife east of Smolensk in August of 1941, and he says that they are, quote, tanks with a gun, only they're open on top so that they shoot with the aid of a scissor telescope. The armor plating is very good, and I learned to appreciate this weapon during the infantry attacks. Every battalion was allocated two assault guns. They would lead the way, and the infantry would advance under their protection. They use, they use shells that are good for combating and shelling tanks as well. So these assault guns, they're, imagine a tank without a turret. The gun is simply sticking out of the hole of the vehicle itself, and they were called um, stugs for short. And so these Sturmgeschutz would help infantry overcome positions. They had a very good high explosive shell on a short-barreled 75mm gun, and they'd be used to blow up enemy bunkers or emplacements, and then in a pinch, they could be used against enemy tanks as well.
So that gives you a little idea of the breakdown of a German infantry division from the fellows we'll be talking about today. It's a 17,000-man division, 600 trucks that are mainly being used for pulling anti-tank weapons with some logistical support, but the vast majority of the division is marching on foot, and the main kind of power they have is horsepower. So it is with these limitations in mobility, but strength and size and firepower, that the German infantry division will march into the Soviet Union on June 22nd, 1941. Now the invasion was to be kicked off at the earliest possible light on June 22nd. This is the longest day of the year, and this was to give the Wehrmacht the longest operating time to launch its surprise attack. Now this attack was to be a complete tactical and strategic surprise to where the Soviets would have no concept of what was about to happen to them. So you can imagine soldiers sitting around waiting for that anticipation of what they call the X-tag, which is essentially the moment or hour that the invasion will be launched. Before your average lens here went across the frontier, they were read a proclamation, essentially at the last minute, from the Führer himself, Adolf Hitler, as an explanation of why they were invading the Soviet Union and what they would be facing. I'm going to read you part of this proclamation, and this will give you a good idea of the idealism that is going into this war. This is not your average war. This is a war of annihilation. This is a war to wipe out not just an army, but a people and a system. Hitler's proclamation reads, Deutsches Volk, at this very moment, a concentration of forces is underway, which in, which in its extent and scope is the largest the world has ever seen. The fighters of the victor of Narvik at the Arctic Ocean stand allied with our Finnish comrades. The formations of the German Ostfront extend from East Prussia to the Carpathian Mountains. At the Prut River, at the lower reaches of the Danube, to the shores of the Black Sea, German and Romanian soldiers are united under the Romanian head of state. The task of this front is thus no longer the protection of individual countries, but the safeguarding of Europe, and with that, the salvation of all. I have therefore today decided to place the destiny and future of the German Reich and our Volk in the hands of our soldiers. May the Lord God aid us in this very struggle. It's important to note the things that Hitler does mention in this proclamation. One is that it is not just seen as a German endeavor. You'll see that he mentions Finland as well as Romania. Now in this podcast, I'm not going to get into the larger strategic picture. That'll come at a later date when we do an overview of this conflict. But it's important to note that the average German soldier thinks of this more as a crusade of Europeans and the German Volk, meaning people, against the Soviet Union. Um, it's not just about Germany. It's about the salvation of the world, essentially, and also an allusion to God being on their side. And this is a holy struggle to rid the world of Jewish Bolshevism. Now, this next segment I'm going to read you is part of the propaganda that was given out to the Lancer prior to them going into the Soviet Union. So besides just Adolf Hitler's proclamation, there was an intense um, Nazification of the soldiers prior to this large-scale invasion. And this is important to note as well because the average German Landsherr was probably more Nazified than uh, almost any other 
part of German society at this time. There's been a lot of debate over the years of how much complicity there was of the German soldiers, whether or not they committed war crimes is different than whether or not they bought into the idea. A historian named Stephen Fritz, who I will quote here, is a big proponent of the idea that almost every single German soldier bought into this invasion as something that needed to happen. Not every soldier, but a vast majority of them thought so. So Stephen Fritz quotes, the rank and file of the Wehrmacht were probably more thoroughly notified than has therefore been acknowledged. Indeed, average Landsherr were consistently among Hitler's strongest supporters. As a consequence, the letters and diaries disclose there existed among the troops in Russia such a striking level of agreement with the Nazi regime's view of the Bolshevik enemy and the sort of treatment that should be dealt with them that the many soldiers were willing to participate in these murderous actions. Again, what made such letters remarkable was the widespread acceptance by average soldiers of these harsh and brutal measures. Indeed, the almost complete absence of any sense of moral or personal outrage on the part of the soldiers. So that shows you how there's been a lot of, of research in recent years been done into that, that they thought that desperate measures needed to be taken to defeat the Bolsheviks. Your average German lands here believed that these were the things that had to be done in order to rid Europe of Bolshevism. As a further way to reinforce this, the German uh, High Command of Armed Forces was called the OKW, also had a, its own propaganda department that released guidelines for the conduct of troops in Russia. So these were developed in May, of May 19th of 1941, and these guidelines include some of the following. One, Bolshevism is the mortal enemy of the National Socialist German people. Germany's struggle is aimed against that destructive ideology and its exponents. Two, the struggle demands ruthless and energetic action against Bolshevik agitators, guerrillas, saboteurs, Jews, and the complete liquidation of any active or passive resistance. Three, extreme reserve and most alert vigilance are called for towards all members of the Red Army, even prisoners as treacherous methods of fighting are to be expected. The Asiatic soldiers of the Red Army in particular are inscrutable, unpredictable, insidious, and unfeeling. 4. After the capture of units, the leaders are to be instantly separated from the other ranks. So there you see some very harsh, poignant guidelines for what the German soldiers should be doing when they're in the Soviet Union. Uh, and they will take that and they will run with it, especially that second part where it says that ruthless action can be taken against agitators, guerrillas, saboteurs, and Jews. And I can tell you right now, they're going to link all of those together. They're all lumped together. Jews are seen as agitators. Thus, according to the very guidelines they were given, they can be liquidated, i.e. killed, with no repercussions from the top. So this bombardment of propaganda and guidelines, quote-unquote, will be what the German Landsier is taking into the Soviet Union. Now, a whole episode could be done just over the war crimes perpetrated by the Wehrmacht, and we will touch on a few of those. But I wanted to read those to you to give you an idea of the ideological emotions that play into this conflict as we read these first-person accounts and understand where the average German Landsier was coming from. Now, all of this ideology 
would play directly into this conflict which is about to erupt. And that moment will be X-Tag at 3 o'clock in the morning on June 22nd, 1941. One of the best accounts of the opening of this massive epic operation is from a soldier of the 30th Infantry Division. And he writes, The men of the 30th Infantry Division had no water obstacles to overcome on their first day. The sapper platoons of their advanced detachment under Obosolot and Weiss crept up to the barbed wire. For days they had been observing every detail. The Russians patrolled the wire only intermittently. Their defense were further back along some high ground. Softly, softly, the wire cutters clicked. A post rattled. Quiet. Listen. But there was no movement on the other side. Keep going. Faster. Now the passages were clear, and already the men of the 6th Company were coming up on the double, ducking as they ran. Not a shot was fired. The two Soviet sentries stared terrified down, the carbine, down our carbine barrels and raised their hands in surrender. Keep going. The observation towers on Hill 71 and 67 stood out black against the sky. There the Russians were established in strong positions. The Landsherr were aware of it, and so were the gunners of the medium battalion of the 30th Artillery Division waiting at the frontier woods behind them. The Russian machine guns opened up from the tower on Hill 71. Immediately, the reply came from the well-camouflaged medium field howitzers of the 2nd Battalion, in position behind the regiments of the 30th Infantry Division. When their shells burst, there would be no grass growing there for a long time. Assault guns, forward! Ducking behind the steel monsters, Vice's advanced detachment was storming the high ground. Already, they were inside the Soviet positions, the Russians were bewildered and taken by surprise. Most of them were not even manning their newly built, though only partially finished, defenses. They were still in their bivouacs. There were Mongolian construction battalions, employed here on building frontier defenses. Whether they were encountered in groups or platoon strength manning those defenses, they fought stubbornly and fanatically, but ultimately destroyed. For many of the German lands here on the first day of the invasion, on June 22nd, There'd be complete surprise. The Soviet defenses would be overrun many times. They would be completely out of touch with what was happening due to the Soviet high command not informing the front lines that there could be a potential conflict. Many of the German soldiers had to cross the Bug River, which was a large river forming the border between, was at that time, the Soviet Union and the German Reich. As the 31st Infantry Division mentioned, they did not, but most had to cross on uh, pneumatic boats or what they called assault boats across the rivers. And there's accounts of how they actually liked how loud the frogs were on the Boog River because it concealed the noise of the, the, the clinking of canteens and weapons as they slowly irked their way across the, the Boog River. The opposite shore had been pre-sighted by German artillery, so when the guns did fire, it was a rapturous applause of guns. People said it turned, you know, day into, I mean, night into day, and the early Soviet positions were either taken by surprise, or they were obliterated by this German artillery, as the quote mentioned before. Now, every battle was not a walkover on the first day, however. In Army Group Center at a fortress called Brest, which was a historic Polish city. Now keep in mind, the Soviets and the Germans divided Poland in 1939. So the opening parts of Operation Barbarossa, at least in Army Group Center of the German Army, are taking place in what used to be Poland. So Brest is an old fortress that the Soviets are holding up in. 
And I will now read you an account from the OKW, the German High Command, talking about its impressions of the first days of fighting in Brest. So I quote, The battles on the islands are extremely difficult. Complex terrain, groups of houses, clusters of trees, bushes, narrow strips of water, plus the ruins, and the enemy is everywhere. His snipers are excellently camouflaged in the trees. Camouflage shoots made of gauze with leaves attached to them. Superb snipers. Shooting from hatches in the ground, basement, windows, sewage pipes. The first impression is that the Bolshevik fights to his very last breath. Perhaps because of the threat of his commissars, those who fall into German captivity are shot, according to statements from the prisoners. At any rate, no slackening of fighting power, even, through res even though resistance is futile since a citadel is surrounded. Silent night. We dig our first graves. So there's an example of opening battles that does not go swimmingly for the German, and the Battle of Brest will actually last for two weeks. It'll hold out behind the lines as German infantrymen, because tanks can't go into the fortress. They've already passed the fortress you know, days ago. It's up to the German lines here to go in with flamethrowers and snake-shaped charges and blow and roast the Soviet defenders out of the Brest fortifications. And this is an early taste of the ferocity of the fighting that your average German soldier will face in the Soviet Union. And you will see multiple accounts of how things are going to be different this time in the Soviet Union. It's not going to be like it was in France. Uh, at Brest, for example, there was a unit that took more losses on the first day than they did in the entire invasion of both Poland and France combined. So that shows you the ferocity that is something that the German army has not dealt with yet in the Second World War. As the opening weeks go by and the success of the opening weeks becomes apparent, there is a sense of euphoria that sweeps uh, the German army. Now we'll see, though, that this euphoria starts becoming a nervous euphoria in the amount of losses that they're taking. But the important thing to remember is that the Germans believe that the war in the East will be over in October, roughly. They think it'll take anywhere from 12 to 17 weeks to defeat the Soviet Red Armor west of two rivers called the Neister and the Divina. They believe that they will encircle and destroy the, the Soviets there, which they are already beginning to do in the early weeks. And they think once that's done, that the Soviet Union will simply collapse. So your German lines here is going to start taking casualties, but we'll also realize that these casualties are necessary to win this quick conflict. And nothing says this better than a guy named Fritz Belk, who's part of the 6th Infantry Division. And he writes in July that since the initial reports of success reached us with those incredible enemy losses with regards to manpower, material, and territory, we think the end of the campaign has already come and behave correspondingly recklessly. Some comrades slip out alone in the evening, armed only with cooking pots to the outlying houses and villages, looking for milk. The Russians are hospitable and everything is always fine. Or at the guard posts, where we arrogantly, confident of victory, fail to recognize the threat of danger and behave as if we were on some campsite. Now with this success of the German army and especially the Panzer groups, there are four of these Panzer groups and they have punched huge holes in the Soviet defenses and are driving towards key cities such as Minsk and also they're advancing in the south towards Kiev. 
but we will have a problem on our hand, and that is what we talked about earlier. As these German motorized and panzer divisions, the minority of the German army shoots off east, now the infantrymen's job will be to march and march and march again. And you will see endless accounts of the degree of how much marching is required to keep up with those panzer units. So a great demonstration of how this played out at the time is going to be from a variety of, of foot soldiers and how much distance they had to cross. So here we have from a guy named Alas Shua, and he is from the 197th Infantry Division, and he writes, My dearest wife, we have now marched approximately 400 kilometers to the east already along dusty cross-country dirt roads through forests, swamps, and marshes, past places where bitter battles were fought, littered with the remains of all kinds of material and countless dead. But we go on without pause and take turns to sit up on our vehicles. Many are extremely footsore. Some fall to the ground with exhaustion. Many horses are also dropping out because the lack of water and the extreme heat and dust are really testing us. We haven't yet had to go hungry, but we've had to endure all the more thirst. There are neither wells nor water supply systems. We take all our water from cisterns and draw wells. It is often dirty, but we drink it. After all, we're not sensitive to it anymore anyway. So there you have an idea of just the distances. And some of these German units, infantry divisions, are marching 30 to 40 miles in a single day. There is forced marches, and on average, it's about 25 miles a day marching um, with full kit. And they would have their rifles, they would have a gas mask canister, they would have 10 clips of ammunition, the support gunners for the machine gun would be carrying two boxes, and they would be carrying five 50-round drum mags, all of this on the march. As he mentioned also, marching with the horses in an attempt to keep up in this grueling pace. Another member of the 26th Infantry Division also stated, So we had a lot to cart around, and that could only be achieved through hard training. Sometimes it got to be too much, and I would clearly love to chuck the lot of it, but I couldn't. It had to be done, and you just had to grit your teeth and bear it. So the machine gunner didn't have to bear the load of the whole machine gun alone. We also helped take it in turns to carry the gun on our shoulder. The demands were heavy, and only a well-trained body could withstand that. That was why we had been drilled and toughened up for months beforehand. We were young, capable, and full of ambition to fight as honorably for Germany as our fathers had done from 1914 to 1918. In this quote, you'll also notice in allusion to the Great War of World War I, many of these soldiers would have been sons or even themselves have fought in the First World War. So there's allusions to marching like their fathers had done in 1914 and 1918. And that's important to remember is that they were victorious in Russia during the First World War. So as much as people might think of the invasions by Napoleon and Charles XII, which were failures, the Germans also saw the victories that they had in the previous war. But to get that victory, they have to keep marching, and they have to keep up with those panzers that are driving through the dusty, hot roads of Russia. So here we have a guy named Alos Scheuer, and he is a member of the 197th Infantry Division, 
And he really plays into this idea of what marching looks like. If you're a foot soldier, it's what you're doing. And he writes, Dearest Fredrin, I finally have a chance again to write a letter to you after 10 days. I think we will march ourselves to death. We put 45 kilometers behind us nearly every day. We see and hear nothing of the enemy. The motorized units are always far ahead of us. Whenever we get through, the battles have always already been taking place several days before. We march doggedly on, through destroyed villages, past fresh graves, always onward. Always onward. For the last few days, I've had stomach problems for the first time. It must surely be because of the one-sided diet, because we're living very primitively. I also now have blisters and bleeding feet. Iodine and sticking plaster are the radical treatments for such troubles. June, 1941. As you've seen, one of the most common features of all of these accounts is the dusty roads that the Lanzer had been marching on. Russian road system was notoriously bad and was nothing like that that the Germans had in Central Europe or what they invaded in Western Europe. So what you're faced with is a modern army attempting to advance along roads that have nothing in common, especially when it rains or snows in comparison with western paved roads. As a final example of this will be a soldier writing on June 27th to his parents. He is an Oberlieutenant Rhein, and he writes, Dear parents, since the six-day-long mail ban will be lifted tomorrow, I wanted to send you a quick word. I am very well, and the leaden exhaustion of the last few days and nights has been thoroughly overcome by the extended day of the rest. And this evening we have our sights set on new objectives. The last five days brought some great moments and many valuable experiences. The company proved itself just as I had hoped it would. The most pleasing thing is that I had only six casualties in the company, despite the tough fighting. For days now, heat has been oppressive. Our constant companions are dust, sweat, and thirst. Despite the frequently very primitive conditions in which we are living, the stresses and the immense heat, not to mention the dusty tracks and roads, often covered in sand 20 centimeters deep. To a man, our mood is marvelous. You should see, my boys, how their eyes light up in the dust-encrusted, pinched faces when it's time to go into battle. It wasn't just going to be the soldiers, though, that were suffering. As I mentioned previously, there was hundreds of thousands of horses also engaged in this operation. So, how do horses handle this heat? And as we'll see, the horses the Germans bring into the Soviet Union were very large, uh, strong horses, but they were not sturdy horses in the sense that they required a lot of high maintenance. And what the Germans who find out is that the local Russian breeds are much hardier and require a lot less food. To give you an idea of how the sand affects those, we have a quote from an officer from the 43rd Army Corps who says that blistering heat, just like the last two days, the only available way of advancing is along the broad Russian sand tracks, through which we wade ankle-deep in dust. Every step, every moving vehicle churns up impenetrable clouds of dust. The advance routes are characterized by yellowy-brown clouds that stand out against the sky like long shrouds. Man and horse are suffering dreadfully from the heat. At every stop, the soldiers fall to the ground like flies and sleep, lying right in the dust and the little shade thrown by a vehicle, perhaps. Faces aren't dusty, they're thoroughly encrusted with sand. 
And as I mentioned before, many of the horse teams were as large as 12 horses per team, pulling these large cannons that were actually split up into two separate pieces of equipment with the carriage being separate from the gun. And this was not just a, a matter of pulling these guns. These required drivers to sit on the horses. There would be hundreds of men that'd be pulling on ropes. This is a Herculean effort to get these cannons moving. Because remember how important artillery is to infantry. They don't have trucks. They don't have tanks. If you don't get this artillery up to the front line, the infantry will be attacking without support. So immense efforts are spent to get these artillery pieces moving and nothing is more indicative of that than this quote that follows. The cannoneers of all the guns step up to the long ropes woven round the wheel hubs. To the ropes! Vehicle! March! Together! After two, three attempts, the heavy unit finally moves. But if the cannoneers lit up even slightly, the vehicle gets stuck again. It goes on like this for kilometers until the layer of sand on the road gets a little thinner. Meanwhile, to the rear, vehicles have again become stuck. The gun crews march back with the long ropes and now pull the next unit ahead, with a team consisting of up to 14 horses. The slapping of whips and the exhausted horses' bodies fly covered with sweat-drenched flanks, crazy urging bellowing from horses' throats amidst this repeated commands. Vehicle! March! Together! And under the ropes, the hundred bodies of the cannoneers given their utmost with veins pulsing at their temples. That is the picture which is repeated all along the road the whole day. Meanwhile, the sun burns down from the sky. The heat wraps around us in the broad pine forest and glares back up on our faces from the light sand on the road. The dust covers us completely and parches our throats. On this day, we lose a whole series of our best horses. So not only do the German soldiers comment on the endless marching, but also the monotony of that marching. And one thing that the average German Landsheer quickly comes to realize is just how massive the Soviet Union is, which, if you look at a map, seems pretty obvious, and the Germans knew this going in, but from a foot soldier's perspective, when you're not on a truck or a tank and you are walking, it becomes mind-numbingly huge in its scope. A member of the 20th Infantry Division writes on this issue, and he says that expanse, never-ending expanse, Monotony in form and color. Gray cottages, squat and isolated. It is a melancholy country, desolate for people from the West. The huts were most likely built in exactly the same way a thousand years ago as they are today. The only progress in this time is no doubt the glass windows. Gray on gray, impoverished and depressed, they stand there, far too tiny. Incidentally, for the many children who grew up in them, but constructed with very clear proportions. In contrast to the few stone houses, usually party buildings in the towns, which are ugly and loveless constructions, these pitiful cottages are tasteful in the circumstances at least. This quote also gives you a good idea of the shock at the depravity and poverty of the Soviet Union that the German soldiers witness. And that is something that they were told in their propaganda, but really see it for the first time. And they march through areas that are often purely agricultural areas. And the Soviet Union had only just started to really modernize in the countryside in the last 
10 to 5 years. And a lot of that modernization was a collectivization or forced collectivization. So you had people that were living in farms that were often failing or were in a transitional period towards rapidly becoming mechanized and collective. So a lot of the poverty they see is, is shocking to the Germans. And on the flip side, later on, the Soviets will wonder, why did this rich German country come invade are peasant hovels, and that'll lead to a lot of resentment. And this is made abundantly clear by that same German officer when he says that the people lived in pitiful conditions, unimaginably poor. They have nothing in their huts. They live with their many children in a single room. The Russians, if you listen to our men, then they are something between human and beast. You know, I don't think a peasant like this has ever been to a cinema, was something I heard recently. The superior civilization of the West gives the simple man, and not only him, an arrogance without equal toward other life forms, and even more so towards other people who evidently don't want to know anything about all the technological stuff that exists in this world. That is, at a pinch, understandable, and yet we should see it differently. A nation of peasants live as long as the earth has life. A nation that works between stone and asphalt can only use up its substance but can't accumulate more. Here you can really see the propaganda and uh, superiority complex at work where their opinion of the Soviet peasant is despicable. They think that they're poor, not because of their circumstances, but these are people who literally can't accumulate wealth because of the Bolshevik system, because of the fact that they're Slavs and they're Asiatic. They're unable to be as successful as someone from Germany could be. So even amongst the average soldier, you see that mentality of these are an inferior people, this country basically deserves to be invaded, and in account after account, the striking level of poverty that's noticed, and also the system being at fault, right? They all see it as, well, here's a prime example of Jewish Bolshevism ridding the world of potential uh, wealth and prosperity. So it's very important to remember that, that these German soldiers are marching into a country, they see the poverty, and it only, in their eyes, uh, enforces that propaganda mindset they already have. And with this mindset, it's going to be very easy for German soldiers to view taking from the people or the countryside as the sure way to keep the supplies flowing. The German army often lived hand-to-mouth in the Soviet Union, and that meant that they often got their supplies, especially food, from the locals. Early on, civilians actually supported the Germans because in the early areas they went into, they saw them as liberators. In places like uh, western Ukraine, they had just gone through a horrible famine that was created by Stalin's government. But the civilians quickly realize that the Germans will be no better and will actually be worse. So an example of that is a guy named Walther K. Nehring, who is a part of the 18th Panzer Division. But he's an infantryman in that Panzer Division. And he says that the troops had lived primarily from the land during the advance. We got everything from the civilian population, and rations were often extremely meager. He remembers that, for example, soup made from boiled chicken bones had to be gotten from Russian civilian populations and only had the slightest hint of flavor that was added to the soup. Frequently, for over three to four days, there was hardly anything to eat at all. 
When you then received something to eat, you had to be extremely careful because the body reacted very sensitively. Although there were still regular supplies of provisions, you didn't notice them. The requisite provisions were generally confiscated from the countryside, taken away from the civilian population. As the last quote mentions, there was a lot of stomach problems that developed as well from soldiers who were eating food that was confiscated from the countryside. And oftentimes this led to a lot of stomach sickness. And especially from the water supplies is when dysentery started becoming uh, very rampant. Uh, dysentery is one of those diseases where you... Uh, basically become dehydrated because you have diarrhea and you have to use the bathroom so often that if it gets bad enough, you can actually die from constantly losing water while going to the bathroom. So a soldier who's part of the 6th Infantry Division comments on this, and he says that during this time, a sort of dysentery epidemic broke out, which was most likely transmitted by the many flies. On top of this was the fact that the first fresh potatoes were available in these days. Frequently, there were also yellow Russian peas at lunchtime, which due to their peculiar qualities were called crackers or fireworks because they encouraged diarrhea even more. I got sick one day too. I must have had to step out to use the bathroom 25 times in one day, but there was nothing but blood. So I lay there for four days, without sleeping, without eating anything. I was so listless and miserable that I could hardly walk. That's a pretty vivid description of what dysentery can do to a soldier, and there was many cases of this, as I mentioned earlier, because of bad water and the food supplies that were taken from the native population. Now, strict German army orders said that soldiers were not to eat local food under any circumstances, that order was often ignored, and soldiers, because they wanted something to eat, would often get from the from the countryside. And the dysentery is also bad because he mentions the flies. When thinking of the terrain of Russia, many times people think of the open steppes, but there's also huge tracts of swamps and forests, especially in Belarusia, which is the western part of Russia. There is immense just endless tracks of forests, and in those forests there's swamps, there's a gigantic swamp called the Pripet Marshes, which essentially cuts the country in two in the western portions. And in these areas, it's very hard to not only navigate, but the terrain itself said breeds uh, flies and mosquitoes that are just you know legion in infecting these troops. These areas also provide great hiding spots for Red Army soldiers that have retreated. Many times these soldiers would flee into the woods and swamps and the Germans would have to basically clear out these areas yard by yard because of how dense the vegetation was or how slow going the swamps were. So the terrain will definitely play a huge part in the tribulations of the German soldiers. Now. At this point, it's important to remember that it's still the summer, right? We are into now August of 1941, and look at all the issues that these German Landsheers are having to deal with. Many times when people think of the campaign in the Soviet Union, they instantly think of the winter, and oh, it was so hard for the Germans because of the winter. 
We haven't even gotten to autumn yet, and look what's going on. The highest German infantry casualties will occur during the summer months, especially uh, when we get to August and September in a place called Smolensk, which was a city in south or central western Russia. There is an immense battle that occurs there that most history books don't even mention, but these are the battles where the German army starts to grind down. These are the battles, but they haven't even reached Moscow yet, right? The winter hasn't even showed up, and the German army is already starting to suffer terrible attritional losses as a result of the summer heat and dust and terrain, and more importantly, the ferocious resistance of the Red Army. So this is where we're going to wrap up this first part of the journey of the Lanz here in the Soviet Union. So as the month of August arrives, the Germans must come to terms with the fact the Soviets will not surrender and are not beaten. The German Lanz here has marched over 600 kilometers to cities such as Smolensk and in the north places like Leningrad, and yet their victory is no closer. The Germans believe it'll take just one more push on Moscow. If they can just do one more giant leap and reach the city, this time they can break the Red Army for real. But as we see, that will be a pipe dream. And the death of the Wehrmacht is already starting to happen. Not in the winter, but the summer of 1941. Our next segment will cover the combat and the experience of fighting in the Soviet Union against this ferocious Red Army and what the uh, the German soldiers often label as Ivan, which was the term for the, the average Russian soldier. So our next segment will cover the uh, drive on Moscow, what intense fighting was like for your average German soldier fighting in the Soviet Union, and what will happen when the Rasputista comes, which is the rainy season of the fall, and then the dreaded winter will appear. So next time we'll see that there's been nothing left in the tank for the German Landsheer, and it will mark the end of a failed bloody campaign. I think it's fitting to end this episode with a poem that was written by a German soldier named Willie Peter Rees, and he had just recently arrived on the front in October, and he says that we stood at the gate of no man's land and felt the nearness of danger and pain. The years of darkness were beginning, as the stars had decreed. Like beggars, we left behind the wreckage of our youth, freedom, love, mind, pleasure, and work. We were required to subject our lives to the will of the age, and our destiny began like a tale of duress, patience, and death. We could not escape the law. There was a breach in our unfinished sense of the world, and like a dream, the march into the other and unknown began, and all our paths ended in night. So I hope you enjoyed this episode, something a little different than what I've done before. I hope you guys stay safe. And I will see you guys on the flip side in our part two of German Landsheer in Russia. Thanks for listening.